Hey everybody, welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm your host, Brandon David. Another great investor interview today. Love those investor interviews with Matt of Cresco Capital. Uh, they made a number of great investments into Harvest, the dispensary in San Francisco, Prohibited Media, Harborside. Great discussion about how uh, they deployed their first fund and how they're now raising money for their second fund. Uh, and speaking of raising money, if you need some help with capital preparation before you go out to investors, Please let us know. Uh, Balanced Advisor is uh, Eric, producer Eric and I's new business, and we're helping companies with their operations. We're helping them get a little part of their life back, get a few more hours of sleep. It's hard to run a business and raise money at the same time. If you need some help, let us know. Balancedadvisor.com. All right, guys, let's get into the episode with Matt of Cresco Capital. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. Well, Matt, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Cresco is a name a lot of people know, and I'm looking forward to jumping into the conversation here. Uh, but for those who don't know, let's just start with uh, what is Cresco? Uh, Cresco Capital Partners is a private equity firm. Uh, we are focused 100% on investing in the legalized cannabis space and have been doing so since 2014. Uh, we have uh, deployed over $25 million in the space through a combination of uh, two different funds. The first fund <clears throat> closed out in um, March of 17, and we're currently raising our second fund right now. <clears throat> that, excuse me, that's a $50 million fund, and we've raised uh, 12 to 13 of that right now so far. Very exciting. And one thing that I love about you guys is you're not afraid to touch the plant. That, that's kind of a clear thesis in the cannabis industry. How did you kind of come to that thesis and, and get comfortable with, with those investments? Well, um, it all started back in 2014 when I was lending money to warehouse owners in Denver uh, looking to refinance their mortgages so they could then lease to growers. Um, I've been in the private equity world for my entire career, and uh, I realized at that time that lending money for a decent yield was nice, but I just realized that if I could somehow get comfortable with underwriting the assets that were actually in the business of the cannabis space, which included growers, um, I would have a first mover, at least a quasi first mover advantage in investing in the space. And so from the get go, I mean, in fact, my first investment was a, was a grow facility. So I wasn't afraid to do it and um, knew that um, you know, I was out there a bit from a regulatory standpoint back then, but now it's, uh, I feel comfortable and my investors are, you know, have one extra layer of protection through the fund format and, uh, I'm, you know, I don't have any issues with it. And did you have much experience with cannabis prior to that? Oh, no, no experience whatsoever. Um, I had, uh, you know, I had been in, investing, like I said, in private equ the private equity world for 20 plus years. And so <clears throat> I just figured if I use the same tenants that I used in, in underwriting uh, other industries, I could just apply the same to cannabis. And that's what we've done. I mean, we've, we look for best of breed management teams. We look for large markets. We look for, uh, you know, disruptive opportunities in those markets. And if you really just you could take out the word cannabis and insert widget and mm -hmm. vice versa. And it's the same type of, of, uh, of investment uh, thesis and strategy that you, you would use from uh, on any industry, really. 
which is really exciting that we've gotten to that point that it's like any other industry now is not that way for some time uh as you know um you said private equity a few different times private equity and venture capital particularly in the cannabis industry tend to get tossed around and sort of interchanged um why why private equity versus venture capital take me through that a little bit well, no, I, in fact, that's a very good question because I think on the contrary, it's still probably a venture capital asset class simply because of the regulatory risk. But if you look at the, you know, the spectrum of risk from private equity versus venture capital, you know, private equity is typically, you know, cash flowing companies that are looking for growth capital or there's recapitalizations or management buyouts. Venture capital is more of the high risk, high return type deals and, and usually when you think of venture capital you think of biotech or software or things of that nature and whereas cannabis really the only reason why it's uh and this is my opinion the only reason why it's uh venture capital <clears throat> is due to the regulatory risk because we can underwrite our assets that we invest in on a you know on a cash flow basis and see if we can generate you know get the returns we need from that standpoint because Quite honestly, back in 2015, when we started this, or even 14, we didn't know that we were going to have the public markets as one form of an exit. And yeah. so the, the Canadian public markets have provided us with uh, at least three uh, exits in our first fund. Um, and likely we'll do another at least two or three more before, you know, within the next six months. And so, exits earlier than anticipated because of that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're, heck, we're still, I mean, we, you know, we deployed, you know, we, we, we're, we're still, you know, from, from follow on investments in the first fund, we're still making investments. I mean, we, you know, we, the, we deployed, you know, 60% of our capital probably in 2016 and 17. So, mm -hmm. and so, yeah, we've, we've, we've deployed a lot of money in a short period of time. I mean, I say a lot of money, a lot of money in the cannabis space yep. for the cannabis space. Yeah. And when you look at those early public exits, does part of you think, well, I kind of wish that they had fought it out longer and created more value in as a private company? Does as any part of you think that way? I'm sorry, can you repeat that? Yeah, just when you have those early exits, uh, public exits, do you mm -hmm. think to yourself, wow, I kind of wish that they had... They had grinded it out longer and created more value privately or? Um... Um, no, because the multiples on these, you know, that the, the public companies are paying for private companies are, are well in advance of what you get, you know, on the, on the, on the private side. And so you're, you're kind of, yeah, you could maybe grind it out another couple of years, but you may get the same value in two years as you would get today from the, the, the public side. When the, you know, when the, when the, when the Canadian stock uh, or Canadian securities exchange decided to allow Canadian companies to own U.S. assets, that's really when the spigot opened. Yep. And, uh, and and all these Canadian companies realized they needed to buy U.S. assets in order to justify their their lofty sales uh, uh, stock price. So uh, that's where the overvaluation comes in to our benefit. And how about control? When, when they flip that switch and become public, don't you have a lot less control than you did before? Um, well, it depends on the nature of the investment. I mean, if we, you know, if we were the majority shareholder, which we only are in a couple of our deals, we would negotiate for board seats on the public company. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, if we're just a passive investor in a, in a private company, then, then we're happy to, 
sell and assuming it's the at the right price and and go through a you know four to six month lockup and then you know make a decision whether we want to sell the stock or not. Yeah, fascinating case study uh, for anyone looking at any industry, really, of how public markets can come in and change everything. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the portfolio. You've made 14 investments out of that first fund. I just want to talk about a couple of them. Maybe you can give me a quick uh, sort of rundown of, of what was interesting about them. Um, let's start with Ebu. Uh, Duma's been on the show before. What about Ebu was... Uh, was really compelling. Well, Duma is no longer involved with Ebu and hasn't been involved since I've been uh, an yep. investor. Duma, uh, John Cooper is the is the CEO and 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 has led that thing. Duma had absolutely nothing to do with it, quite frankly. Um, so John Cooper is the is has done an incredible job of of uh, shucking and jiving and and switching models to where whatever kind of using the the proprietary. Uh, backbone of that company, which is uh, the technology behind it, um, to fit in the right place in the market. And I think now with the licensing model that he's created, he's done that. And it's a, uh, you know, it was a, it's a high profile investment back in 14 and 15, but but John has raised a, a fair amount of money and has created value and, um, you know, in some tumultuous times too. And so it's a, it's mm -hmm. a uh, speaking of case studies, I, I would argue that John Cooper's efforts to, to write that ship on more than one occasion has been um, a fascinating case study. Cool. Yeah. Maybe we should get him on the show. Um, well, you would be better off getting him than Duma. I can promise you that because he is, he has done an amazing job with that company. For sure. Um, you've made investments both in Harvest as well as Harborside, uh, two dispensaries in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about sort of the strategy there. Like obviously they're competitors, how do you think about putting competitors in in the portfolio? Well, those were uh, those were two different, and it's and, it, and not quite competitors because Harvest is in San Francisco and 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 Harborside's in Oakland, so two you know different MSAs, but yet still in the Bay Area. But uh, two different strategies completely, actually. So Harvest had an interesting model originally, was in that they uh, owned the real estate, so your downside was projected uh, as an investor with with the two uh, dispensaries that we that we invested in with Marty Higgins and, and Marty was a seasoned uh, operator and so I felt comfortable with him that way. And it was also more of a, of a kind of an upscale um, feel to the dispensaries which was, which was uh, very evolutionary at the time. Uh, Harborside was different. We actually came into Harborside through the cultivation arm in Salinas which is a huge facility that can grow almost 80,000 80, pounds of flour a year. Mm. And, uh, you know, obviously a good portion of that is earmarked for Harborside and, and, uh, and, our, and our other dispensaries and partners. Uh, only recently did we merge those two together to, into Flourish Inc., which is the parent company, which I sit on the board. And, and now we're kind of looking at our uh, potential public uh, route strategies to, to even monetize the investment further. Mm. Um, so one that's a little outside of the rest of the portfolio is prohibited media. Talk about that investment and, and what was interesting. Sure. Prohibited is actually out of our second fund. Um, it's our, it's our third investment out of the second fund. Uh, prohibited was in my opinion, the, uh, becoming the dominant player in the media space. Um, it got, uh, the most content video content of any other provider, uh, 
that accesses the industry. Um, Drake, the CEO, has been a um, uh, you know a, a video and productions guy, uh, media guy, and variety of industries for 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 you know 20, 30 years, and and has been doing this organically, growing organically as business in the cannabis space since fifteen. And so when he decided to raise a little money. Um, you know, it made sense for us to kind of find a different vertical to go down. And, I'm, and I think, you know, building brands and with, with media and, and, and content, et cetera, is going to become uh, critical as, as companies mature. And, and it's also in the industry maturing, too. And I think that's, that's one of the things you see is that you have more ancillary opportunities pop up as the industry matures. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Um, let's talk about fundraising a little bit. Um, 20 million in the first fund. Talk about raising that fund. I know you have a lot of experience. Um, maybe some advice for someone that's never raised a fund or, or sort of how to get started in that process. Well, um, I, I, you know, I did have experience in raising funds. So from a third party fiduciary standpoint, from a, you know, structuring and things like that, it, it was, um, it was easier for me probably than somebody who hadn't done it before. So, um, and sometimes that's the hardest part is just getting, you know, getting the right structure and, um, you know, and, and having the, the, the confidence and wherewithal to go out there and just put something out there with your name on it and raise money. Um, this was a different animal. I mean, this is, and I live in Dallas, Texas. It's a pretty conservative city. And so yep. most of the people that I had raised money from in the past were looking at me with squinting eyes back in 14 and 15. And so uh, now they're clamoring to get into the second fund. So it's, it's, it was a bit different. It was lucky the, the 20 million was raised, you know, kind of in parcel with uh, my partner, Todd Bourne and fund two. I mean, his group raised 10, we raised 10 collectively. We deployed with co-invest over 25 million. Um, and now together we're raising 50 to, to, to further explore the market. Got it. And who are the LPs in this fund primarily? Uh, all high net worth individuals and family offices. And these are people that were in your network or you used some um, channel to find um, them? Um, it was primarily, you know, it's just, it's it, that's the hardest part. I'll kind of go back to your first question about this is that the hardest part and maybe the most, the best advice I can give is to, you know, lean on others that have deeper Rolodexes than you and, and um, try to partner in some way with them to, to bring in the capital because I couldn't have raised this money from just Dallas, Texas alone. I mean, all, almost all my, well, a good portion of my investors other than friends and family are from outside the state. Mm. And yeah, let's talk about Dallas just for a second. Have you seen the attitude, the perception of cannabis shift there? Oh gosh, without a doubt. I mean, it's, it's quite, <clears throat> I mean, it, it's, I'll use an example with my, my mother, my mother, uh, has fibromyalgia and she uses CBD to, to kind of minimize some of the pain. And, and she would have no more thought of using a cannabis based product. Even two years ago, she would have looked at me like I was crazy. So now it's so accepted that heck you can buy CBD online, I mean, even in Texas. So it's, uh, it, you know, it's the non, psychoactive part of the plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, it's very much accepted. I think public acceptance across the nation is, you know, darn near 70%. So even in Texas, there's movement to, to expand the, uh, the programs and, 
I don't know if it'll happen in this legislative session, but but it could happen after that. Yeah, no, very exciting when you hear the most conservative areas of the country starting to. Well, I mean, look at look yeah, look at Oklahoma. Oklahoma's yeah. probably more conservative than Texas, and they just passed a a, a sweeping uh, medicinal program. So yeah, they also have, need the the revenue really badly too. No doubt about it, I, and I would country. say for sure. I mean, look, and from a you know just a the economics case study when you kind of go back to the case study again i mean the marijuana industry is impacting you know local you know municipal uh, state and, and federal tax coffers unlike any other um you know new revenue generating source and so that aligns that's where both parties can kind of come together and say okay this makes some sense how do we do it you know the, the right way yeah, no, uh, very, very cool. Let's talk a little bit. I'm always fascinated sort of investors have different processes, a different thesis of how they find companies, how they evaluate them. Um, sort of talk a little bit about that. Where is the deal flow coming from and, that, and what kind of paces do you put these these companies through before you put money in? Sure. And, and you know, we have a pretty stringent process of just, you know, going through the, the you know, checking the boxes of a diligence standpoint, but but having said that, every deal is a little bit different. I mean, but most of the deals we're seeing now are coming from our network, which um, eliminates some of the need of, of um, you know, finding out more about the operators because if they come referred by people that we know or that or it's a company that they're doing business with, um, that makes it a, a little bit easier to to, to move to move quicker. Um, you know, we're looking for stuff just like everybody else is. We look for opportunities that are that are large enough to create critical mass in the public markets. Looking for, you know, obviously it's a until that liquidity dries up, that's going to be a a big opportunity for for any investor that can get in on the on the private side. You know, prior to a public offering or a public listing. So, and we're lucky enough that we have the network since we've done this since 14 to, to generate deals like that. Um, and then other things are just, you know, they, they keep things come at the desk uh, just at a, at a more rapid pace than they did, you know, four years ago. And that's just because we've been in the game for them. So a lot of it's, um, we're benefiting from the spade work we did way back when, but we still, you know, because we've got a deeper team and a deeper bench now, we're still able to find deals, you know, on our own. Uh, you know, on our own nickel as well. Yeah, no, for sure. What's kind of the focus going forward here of the of the new fund? Um, you've made uh, a wide range of different investments previously. Is there any more focus this time around? Um, well, the focus is very specific. The focus is giving high net worth individuals and, and family offices access to the space using a very diversified approach. So the what could be confused as a lack of focus is really the exact focus. opposite. Yeah, it's got it. It's you know we we want to be as diversified as possible because if I'm a high net worth guy that wants to get into a fund, I I don't want to be 100% focused on on cultivation. And I don't want to be 100% focused on retail, and quite frankly, I don't want to be 100% focused on ancillary non-touching opportunities. I want to be a mixture of all, and that's what I feel like we've done. And the first fund was probably more uh, at the beginning, luck than than not because we just happened to get deal flow that was that way. But then, since the middle of the first fund to now, we 
make it a point to say, okay, how does this fit? And do our portfolio companies, can they benefit from one another? Can we get create not only the synergies, but also economies of scale? Um, so we, we're becoming a lot more of a strategic investor in the space than we were in the beginning, because again, we've been doing it for a while. Yeah, makes sense. Um, I want to talk a little bit about software in particular. That's my background and sort of the part of the industry that, that I find really, really interesting. Um, what do you look for in a software company? I don't think you've, uh, have you made an investment in that space today? Well, we're actually about to make our first two and I probably can't speak to who they are, but they're, okay. um, but, but they're probably people that you've heard of and they're um, industry leaders in their space. I mean, you know, been ones in the kind of quasi point of sale area, ones in the online marketplace, and, mm -hmm. you know, those are, those are big businesses and, it, and, and I'm becoming a little more confident in, in looking at those things, primarily because we now have some talent on our team that can help underwrite software deals, because that's not my background. Um, but also, the like I said, the industry is maturing to the point to where those deals are more viable now than they were three or four years ago. Absolutely. And there's still enough of a barrier from the traditional institutional investors that there's some great opportunities. That's the kind of window. Well, that's, the, that, that's without a doubt. That's the... That's the whole underlying thing here is until the institutions get involved in this game, uh, private capital has an edge. Um, but the other thing is there's never going to be enough private capital to take advantage of the opportunities that exist in the marketplace um, the way it's currently constructed. So I'm hopeful that in you know two to four years, that's when, you know, more institutional capital come into the game and um, we may have another exit strategy at that point with that influx of capital, but it'll also help the business, help the industry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's talk a little bit more about the future. Is there a segment that you're excited about, something that you wish would be built in the world or, or a hole that you, that you see? Um, well, I would say in the second fund, we there's there's one thing we don't focus on and then there's, uh, and then there's um, something else that we want to focus on. I would say that the gone are the days of the of the standalone, you know, uh, warehouse uh, grow facility being an attractive uh, cultivation investment. I mean, we're we're looking more on the large, large scale, you know, outdoor or quasi outdoor facilities. I mean, every now and then, if there's a, a really, really big indoor facility in somewhere in the Northeast that has, you know, a good cost per pound structure, then we'll look at that. Um, but, you know, the, the, when this thing becomes commoditized, you know, and in in which I think will be in the near future, it's going to be the outdoor, quasi outdoor facilities that are, that have the lower cost structures that are going to um, win the prize. And then secondly is, you know, I want to start doing more with products and you know, branded products and things of that nature. But it's just it's it's tricky due to the uh, no state to state trade. So if we do something in a brand standpoint, we're, we're probably about to pull the trigger on one pretty soon. Um, <clears throat> it's going to have to be a California presence um, and hopefully one or two other states as well to. Mm -hmm to grow that on a state-by-state -state basis, but that costs a lot of money. Yep, 
Yep. Um, back to your first point about outdoor grows being the future. Do you also agree as an extension that uh, cannabis will be grown primarily around the equator, sort of in South American warm climates? Um, no, I mean, on the contrary, I think Northern California is a, is a fantastic place to grow cannabis. And I mean, look at um, not only in Salinas and Monterey County, but I mean, look at, uh, uh, you know, Oregon and, um, and Humboldt County in California. I mean, those are, you know, very, very good places to grow outdoors. And, um, you know, if it's, if, but if you can find other places, uh, like you said, by the equator that are, you know, where this pickle plant can grow, then that's great too. Yeah. I guess I was just referring more to a, a cost structure and, and sort of labor, um, um it, you know maybe but i think that it's uh you know our cost structure the way it is now in northern california with the you know i think the, the further the further south you get the more um you know cooling systems you're going to need and, and things of that nature and so the, the 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 labor cost and the additional price to keep things you know going from you know operationally with you know cooling systems and whatnot you know may 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 outweigh the benefits. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that's a fascinating and sort of different take. I think uh, largely the perception is that it's headed that way, but uh, I, like, I like your points uh, very much. Um, kind of uh, switching gears a little bit. There's a lot of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs, people looking to get into the space. Any advice for how to reach out to you or how to you know address um investors or you know what do you look for sort of in a in yeah well i mean first our website we have you know ways to contact us and you know we'll look at we get hundreds of deals you know a day or every other day and so but we do take a look at everything and um obviously if you look if you have a connection to an investor that's the best way to go about it um but, you know, rather than just a complete cold call, but, you know, networking is the, is the way to do it. And it's, uh, it's not easy, it's, but, it's, but it's just the world we live in, unfortunately. Absolutely. And, and sort of take us through how you spend your time. How much do you look at deals versus raise money versus, you know, how, how does that break down? Well, it, it varies. I mean, I think, you know, especially this time of year, you know, with family offices and high net worth individuals being on vacation, it's mm -hmm. I spend a lot more time looking at deals right now. But you know, come late August, early September, I'll be right back on the road and and raising money, and we'll you know have to uh, you know we kind of just have a, a, a tag team system amongst all the partners to see who's doing what, and we'll continue to do that. But um, but I try to make it as much 50-50 as I can. But when you're in fundraising mode, sometimes that just isn't the case. And it's, it's, that outweighs the, uh, the deal side sometimes. And, and how does the deal process work between the founders? Uh, if you bring a deal, do you then sort of have to defend it to the rest of them? And, yeah, and we have, just like any private equity fund, we have a investment committee. And, and you know, we make... Um, you know, a collective decision, and if there's dissension, then we likely don't move forward. Got it. So it's sort of a, a universal yes that's required. Pretty much, yes. Got it. Fascinating. Um, okay. Well, uh, this is the point in the show where 
uh, how would you like to use our audience? Um, anything? Are you hiring for anything? Any of the companies hiring for anything? The, it's your chance to plug uh, whatever you'd like. I mean, look, I mean, we've been, and I appreciate that, and I thank you for the candid questions. Uh, we feel like we are, you know, one of the preeminent private equity funds in the space. I mean, primarily because of our track record and we have, uh, you know, exits out of our first fund. But, but again, we've just been doing this as long uh, as anybody. We don't have the, we haven't raised as much money as a Tuatara or a privateer, but you know, behind them, we've been quietly behind the scenes, you know, placing a fair amount of capital. I mean, we were really, really, um, you know, like I said, behind the scenes for the first couple of years. And that was by design. I mean, I just, you know, I didn't know where this thing was, was taking us. And then but once we got, you know, some traction and, and, the, and the industry started taking off, I mean, I that's when I started speaking at some of the industry conferences and kind of getting out there a little bit more. And, and I'm committed to doing that now. And being an advocate for the space and uh, not only for this fund, but I'm sure we'll raise a, an additional one later. And, um, but, you know, for the next year, we'll have our fund open for iNetwork investors and family offices. And we'd love to chat with, uh, with folks who have an interest in getting involved uh, from an investment standpoint. One awesome. last thing, I'll, just one last thing I'll say, and, I, and, I, and it's just a piece of advice and caution for for family offices and high net worth individuals is, is, is go with a fund, get comfortable with fund economics uh, because the ones that have been doing this for a while, like us know where the landmines are. We know where the bodies are buried. Uh, look for somebody that gives, you know, attractive co-investment rights like we do. And whether you go with us or somebody else that's like us, uh, that would be the, the best piece of advice I can give because doing it on your own, you'll spend two to three years trying to get comfortable and you may never pull the trigger. Mm-hmm. Is there a minimum for individuals? Uh huh. We have a two hundred thousand dollar minimum. It's a PPM with Reg D filing, so it's uh, you know all all above board, and and you know we're just we're just out pounding the pavement and continue to do so. Good stuff. Well, this has been a fascinating interview. Thank you so much for joining us. You bet. Thank you so much for your time.